We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans and the ninth chapter. The book of Romans and the ninth chapter. And I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 19 through 29. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 29, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this epistle. I invite you to read along as I read out loud this morning. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Here Paul writes, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I shall call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time this morning to consider your word, and we would ask now for the work of the sovereign Spirit of God upon our hearts and minds, and that he would show us the meaning of this passage, that he would help us to understand it and to accept its truth, and to apply the truth of your word to our own thoughts in such a way that our thinking and our lives are transformed for the glory of God. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, as we saw last Sunday, Paul's purpose in this section of Romans chapter 9 is to exalt the sovereignty of God in man's salvation. The sovereignty of God in man's salvation. Or to put it another way, to set forth the prerogative of God in choosing who he will save. And God does this, and Paul does this this morning in this text, by presenting and then answering some of the major arguments that Paul's opponents were presenting in opposition to Paul's teaching. For you'll recall that Paul had made it very clear back in verses 1 through 5 of this ninth chapter that the Israelites were in a state of ignorance and unbelief related to the nature of God's promise of salvation through Christ, and so much so that the Israelites were separated from God 
despite the many privileges that they had received throughout the course of their history. In fact, the arrogance of the Israelites in assuming that they were the children of God was a cause of great sorrow and unceasing anguish for Paul. And Paul's willingness to offer up his own acceptance with God, if it were possible to secure the salvation of his kinsmen according to the flesh, demonstrated the extent to which Paul loved the Israelites and desired to see them saved. In fact, Paul's desire to put their spiritual welfare above his own was nothing short of Christ-like. And it complemented the message of the gospel that Paul had labored so diligently to deliver to his people. And yet, despite Paul's concern and compassion for the Israelites, they would not yield to Paul's teaching. So in writing here in Romans 9 of the sad state of his people, Paul endeavors to not only give an accurate assessment of their spiritual condition, but he attempts to dismantle piece by piece some of their major objections. And as we saw last week, Paul began to do this in verses 6 through 18 of this ninth chapter. For first, Paul dismantled the objection that the problem was not Israel's response to God, but the failure of the promise itself. For some reason that Israel had been faithful to God throughout her history, but that the promise had faltered, that the promise had somehow fallen short. For it was easier for Paul's opponents to blame the promise than to admit the people had failed. And that's sad indeed. However, Paul made it very clear here by appealing to Israel's own history that the promise of God never failed. The promise of God never faltered. For it was never God's intention to bring about the salvation of Ezra, every Israelite, nor to ensure that all of the physical descendants of the patriarchs would be a part of true Israel. And of course, God's word had revealed this. In fact, back in verses 6 through 13 of this ninth chapter, Paul stressed how God's sovereign choice of individuals impacted the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and how some were actually rejected by God and passed over completely as as in the case of Ishmael and Esau. For in exercising his own sovereign prerogative, God powerfully revealed that he is the one who chooses. And his choice is not determined by human circumstances. His choice is not dependent upon human actions. And we discussed that, as I said, last Sunday. Furthermore, as we saw back in verses 14 through 18, Paul also dismantled the objection that God's choice of some and his rejection of others is unjust. Because the way that God operates is not the way that lost men conceive of justice. For lost men argue today that the only way that God can be just is to choose everybody that the only way that God can be just is to ensure that everyone gets an equal chance. 
No doubt you've heard that before. And yet Paul makes it clear that God isn't obligated to operate like that. For God owes man, God owes us, you and I, absolutely nothing. In fact, if anyone is saved today, it's only because of God's mercy and compassion, which he displays to those whom he has set his love upon and has chosen by divine election. For God declared to Moses in Exodus 33:19 and repeated again in Romans 9:15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For once again, what God chooses to do in the exercise of his sovereignty is not dependent upon what man does nor can it be influenced, nor can it be manipulated by anything that we do as human beings. Why? Because God is absolutely free to do as He wills. And if God chooses to do as He wills, He is not unjust in doing so. And of course, this applies not only in the lives of those who receive God's mercy and compassion, but it is also true in the lives of those who never receive mercy or compassion at all. For you'll remember that Paul concluded this last section by referring to Pharaoh in verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 9. For Pharaoh was clearly proof that God leaves some men to their own depravity. Did you hear that? God leaves some men to their own depravity, and even in doing so, they serve his appointed purpose. For God declared to rebellious Pharaoh in Exodus 9, verse 16, repeated in Romans 9, 17 and 18, these words, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power, whose power? My power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. For Pharaoh's resistance had been decreed by God. Pharaoh's resistance had been decreed by God. And in resisting God, Pharaoh not only demonstrated that he was undeserving of God's mercy and compassion, but that God was right and just and, and faithful in withholding it. For no one argues, I've not heard anyone argue, that Pharaoh was entitled to God's mercy and compassion. But all agree that God was just in condemning him for his unbelief and rebellion. And friends, when the final judgment comes, and those who have rebelled against Christ are judged, we will see the justice of God displayed, and we will rejoice in it. We will rejoice in it. Now we come, brethren, to the third objection that Paul anticipates that Paul answers that Paul dismantles here in our text this morning, and that is the objection that God himself was to blame for Israel's condition. God himself was to blame for Israel's condition. For notice how Paul words this objection here in verse 19. 
You will say to me then, why does he, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Or in other words, why is God placing the blame on sinful and lost men since it is impossible for them to resist to go against his sovereign will anyway? Hasn't God made it difficult for them? Hasn't God, in a sense, frustrated his own purposes? Maybe you once, in unbelief and ingratitude of heart, asked this same question as well. It's an objection that reflects a very distorted view of God and our place under his sovereign rule. And it's an objection that needs to be repented of immediately. And how do we know it's, a, it's an objection that we need to repent of immediately? Because of Paul's initial response here in verse 20 of Romans 9. Notice what he says. Paul writes, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What gives you the right to answer back to God in this way? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? And no doubt this third objection needs to be repented of because it gives rise to our unbelief and our rebellion in several ways. First of all, this objection assumes that we have a right to question God, that we have a right to answer God back, when in reality, you and I have no right to answer or to speak back to God at all. In fact, the knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty over us, especially in the matter of salvation, should silence us. It should silence us unless we are calling out for mercy and compassion. And if we are believers today, because of God's choice of us, our response should not be talking back to God, but giving Him our praise. Then secondly, this objection that God himself is at fault is offensive because it fails to understand again that God is under no obligation to answer us at all. In fact, to insist that God must answer us, that God must justify his actions to us, is to fail to see, brethren, that there is a profound and incomprehensible difference between God and us. There's a big difference between God and us. Whereas Paul states here in verse 20, we are simply that which is molded. We may think a lot of ourselves this morning, but the reality is you and I are just fashioned out of dirt and mud. We have been molded at God's pleasure. We have been molded into his image. He is the molder. He is the one who formed us. He is the one who, if he chooses to do so, can discard what he has made. In fact, that's the whole point of this section. And needless to say, some men today object to Paul's words here in verse 20 because they've been taught that God is not sovereign in the sense that Paul describes here but that God himself is the one who is moldable. For many in their misguided theology today see man as the one who is sovereign. They see man as the one who has the right to question God or even to demand things from God, and they portray God as the one who bends. 
God is the one who changes. God is the one who accommodates. God is the one who yields up his rights to do as man wishes to do. And the fact in the minds of many today, God makes choices only after we, as his creature, make choices. That's typically how it's presented. God is waiting. God is patient. God is, in a sense, helpless until we make the choice. And then God simply chooses to ratify our decisions to ratify our decision for him, which is not, by the way, what election means. Then thirdly, this third objection that God is at fault and that God has placed man in a bad situation because we can't resist his will is based on a, a misunderstanding of our own sinfulness and depravity a misunderstanding of our own sinfulness and depravity. For who are we to say to God, the one who molded us, why have you made us like this? Because it has been our own unwillingness to do God's will and not God. That is to blame for our fallen condition. That is to blame for our inability to obey his commands. And the fact that we can't resist his will should not be reviewed as a bad thing because it demonstrates that God is all-powerful and that he will do what he has decreed. And yet we actively twist the truth by suggesting that God has actually harmed us by making choices that affect us without our choice and input. No, brethren, hear me this morning. Let us put off this temptation that the devil constantly sets before us that we as fallen creatures would be better off if we made the choices. And if God would simply let us determine our own spiritual futures. For that temptation is based upon a lie. It's an outright denial of God's goodness. Then in addition to emphasizing that we are in no position to question the one who has molded us, Paul also appeals here to God's right to do whatever he wants with what he has created. For notice Paul asks the question here in verse 21 of Romans 9. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And of course the answer is yes, God has such a right. God has such a right. In fact, Paul's Jewish opponents would have been very familiar with Paul's argument here because God had referred to himself several times in the Old Testament as a potter over Israel. For example, in Isaiah 45, in verse 9, God identified himself as the one who formed Israel as a potter forms a pot for his own use. And God also pronounced a woe on those who strove against him as the potter. For God declared, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, Why are you making me thus? Or your work has no handles, criticizing the way that God has designed the pot? Because common sense states that the pot has no right whatsoever 
to question the work of the potter. The pot has no right whatsoever to complain about how he will be used. And no doubt Paul is building upon this Old Testament reference here and others to insist upon the fact that while the pot has no rights to question or to complain, the potter has every right to choose how he will use the pots that he has created. Because after all, he is the one who owns the pot. He is the one who formed the pot. He is the one who is free to discard the pot if he finds that the pot or pots do not serve his purpose. And if the potter does decide to use them for different purposes, how can anyone be justified in blaming him? How can anybody be justified in criticizing the potter for exercising his own choice over his own property? He is within his rights to act as he pleases. He is obligated to answer to no one. Needless to say, Paul's purpose in appealing to these truths here in our text is to emphasize that they also apply to God's choice of men in salvation. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it. These principles he's talking about here in this section about God's rights also apply to God's choice of men in salvation. For if a potter is justified in determining which pots he will employ for one purpose and which pots he will employ for another purpose, who has the right to object to him? And the obvious answer from Paul is, no one does. No one does. And yet, what might God's purposes be for not choosing some and choosing others? Well, first, let me just stress here that by not choosing some, God is not unjust. God is not cruel. For justice demands that all men be held accountable for their sins. It is not cruel for a judge to administer justice in the case of those who are guilty. If you and I go down to the courthouse tomorrow and we watch a trial and a just hands out a just verdict to somebody who is guilty, we have no right to criticize that judge. In fact, we have every reason to praise and thank that judge for being consistent, for being just. The same is true with God. Then secondly, it is not unfair for God to choose some and not others. For even those who hate the doctrine of election have to admit that God is perfectly free to choose water who he will set his affections upon. I said something a little bit differently, and I hope that you listen to the words. He's free, he's free to choose what he will set his affections upon. And when he does choose what he will set his affections upon, he is not to be faulted for making his choice. He is not to be faulted. For example, just consider the case of marriage. The case of marriage. For just as in the case of marriage, a man is free to choose whom he loves. He's free to choose from among many. 
In fact, we do not consider a man to be under any obligation whatsoever to marry someone he doesn't love. And when he makes a choice, he has not done an injustice to those whom he has decided not to choose. And of course, a marriage is a good analogy to use here. Because when we talk about divine election, when we talk about those whom God chooses for salvation, when we talk about those for whom God chooses for his church, we're talking about God's selection of a bride. We're talking about God's selection of a bride for his son. For the church is described in scripture as the bride of Jesus Christ. And because the church has been chosen for and by Christ, his love is set on her above all others. In fact, he is entirely committed to her welfare, to the bride's welfare, to presenting the bride spotless in glory. And therefore, those who are not Christ's bride, those who are not a part of his church, those who are not chosen, are not treated cruelly simply because he did not set his affections upon them in particular. And they are held accountable for their sins and offenses against God, which is only right and which is only just. So God's purposes for those vessels which he has sovereignly formed and chosen may be different. There may be different. He may choose some as a father chooses a bride for his son. He may choose others as a judge or not choose others as a judge who is right to exercise judgment. And yet in both cases, Paul argues, they ultimately serve to bring him glory, either as a vessel fitted for destruction or a vessel chosen for mercy. In fact, the Apostle Paul presents both of these scenarios here in verses 22 and 23 of Romans 9. Notice verses 22 and 23 of Romans 9. For Paul writes in response, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, which again, he has the total freedom to do, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. And notice the language here. This is not my language. This is the language of the text, which he has prepared which he has prepared beforehand. For just as we should have no problem acknowledging the fact that God can destroy or show mercy at will, so we should accept the fact that it is completely within his rights to determine what a particular vessel will be. Will this vessel be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? Or will this vessel be a vessel of mercy? These are weighty things to think about. These are serious truths to consider, but I'm just striving here to read the text as it is presented, and to comment as I can. For if we say that God does not have this right, we do not believe in God's sovereignty, regardless of what we claim. But if we acknowledge and believe that God has this right, then we will be humbled before him. We will not speak against him or question what he does. Because again, the fact is God is not bound 
to save anyone except those he has decreed to save for the sake of his son. What's truly amazing is that God has chosen to call to his son men and women and young people and old people from both the Jewish race and from the Gentiles. In fact, Paul affirms this truth here at the end of verse 24 of Romans 9, where he rejoices that God's mercy extends even to us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And notice this, because rather than being overly restrictive and stingy with his mercy, God actually expresses his mercy widely. Widely, for there are many Jew and Gentile who are chosen and called, and not just Jew and not just Gentile, but both. And was this always God's design? Indeed, it was always God's design. For in quoting here in verses 26 and 27 from the book of Hosea, Paul reminds us that God is indeed rich in mercy. For God decreed in his great love and wisdom that he would call to himself a people who were not formerly his people. And he would call them beloved, despite the obvious fact that they were unlovable. And they would be known and recognized as God's chosen possession. Notice what he says here in the text. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved and in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called the sons of the living God. While many scholars interpret these words of Paul as referring to God's choosing of the Gentiles in the past, these words have application to us, to us, to you, to me, who are believing Gentiles today. For if we as Gentiles are true believers today by God's choice and by God's calling, it is because God in his great mercy chose us even when we were not his people. And even though we had nothing commendable to attract us or to attract God to us or to compel God to love us. And yet he purposed to call us his beloved to give us the privilege to be identified as the sons of the living God. These are amazing truths to consider. Truths that many do not want to consider, but need to. This is why we need to study. This is why we need to humbly meditate on the prerogative of our merciful God. This is the beauty of the doctrine of divine election. This is why we should not shy away from speaking about God's sovereignty and salvation, for contained in these doctrines are great and precious truths that comfort us and assure us, particularly those of us who've been chosen by God, that we are His. Then lastly, Paul mentions here in verses 27 through 29 of Romans chapter 9, what the prerogative of God meant for the sons of Israel. Remember Paul's thinking about Israel here. And it meant that they, Israel, would also be subject to the sovereign purpose of God, which was not that all of Israel would be saved as the Israelites had insisted. 
But due to unbelief, only a remnant, only a relatively small number from among them would be called and believe. Notice what the prophet Isaiah cried out here. For though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, which you'll recall was a promise made to Abraham concerning the physical descendants that he would have, and God did fulfill this promise, the sons of Israel were as the sands of the sea, yet only a remnant of them will be saved. Notice this is God's words here. Only a remnant of them would be saved. And the reason for this was the choice of God. The reason for this was the judgment God chose to inflict upon Israel as a powerful display of his glorious justice given their refusal to receive the Christ. In fact, Paul speaks of this judgment in verse 28. Notice verse 28 where he writes, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. What sentence is Paul referring to here? Well, many believe that it would refer to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the years to come in which God would disperse Israel as a physical nation. For truly God's decree to carry out his sentence, even among those who claim to be his physical descendants, was done to humble them, to remind them that God has the prerogative to judge as well as to save that if God were not merciful, even in judgment, all would be lost. If God was not merciful in judgment, all would be lost. We're quoting again and lastly from the prophet Isaiah here in verse 29. Notice Paul declares, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, if the Lord himself had not been merciful in this regard, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? There were two cities with great populations that were completely destroyed by God's judgment, save a small number who were called out by God and spared. God works the same way today, Paul says, among the nation of Israel. There are many as the sand of the seashore within Israel, but only those whom God has chosen by divine election, according to the remnant, shall be spared. Humbling words, but nonetheless the word of God. Therefore, understanding the prerogative of God is, is a serious and humbling endeavor. And it reminds us that God is absolutely sovereign and we are wise and in the best place to submit to him when we accept his sovereignty. So where, my friend, do you stand with respect to the sovereignty of God today? Maybe you're thinking, well, pastor, I don't know. My heart is troubled. These are hard truths. I thought I was in control. I thought I had the choices to make. And now you're telling me that God is in control and that's what I do want you to hear today. God is in control. 
And you say, well, then what do I do if God is in control and completely in control and absolutely in control? Then there's only one thing that you can do, and that's to cry out to God in mercy. To cry out to God for mercy, to go to the one who is the potter, to go to the one who did make you as a vessel and plead for salvation. We learn in other places in Scripture that if we do have that inclination to cry out to God, if we do go to God, then that's often evidence that God is working in our hearts. It's often evidence that God will draw us to His Son in salvation. But if we harden our hearts this morning, if we say that I will not bow to God's right to rule over me, I will not admit that I am His creature, that He molded me and made me and has a choice over my life, then you'll get what you deserve. You'll get what you deserve for your rebellion and your unbelief and your ingratitude, and that is judgment. Judgment. I plead with you today to pray for grace, for the work of the Spirit, that He might soften your heart, that He might open your minds to these truths, and work a powerful work of conviction in you that you have no choice today but to flee to Jesus Christ. Because you know that you can't push through on your own. You know that you can't make it through your own wisdom, through your own effort, through your own choices. You need the grace of God, which only comes through Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace to hear his word today. Give us open and receptive minds and hearts for his glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your word today. And while it humbles us in the dust, and it teaches us that we are not in control, that you are absolutely in control, and that you will do what you will and what you choose and what your good pleasure is, regardless of what we think or say, we would ask, O oh God, that you would give us the grace through your Holy Spirit to understand that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is meant for us. It is meant to convict us. It is meant to humble us. It is meant to call us to repentance. It is meant to force us, to compel us to seek your mercy. And we would ask for that today, and we would ask for the work of your Spirit in all of our hearts, even those of us who are believers, to accept this doctrine, to believe it and to find comfort in it, if you have indeed, by your mercy and choice, chosen us for salvation. And if we are among the chosen of God, if we know by the inward witness of the Spirit that we are Christians today, we should not in any way be arrogant or proud but we should be humbled in knowing that you had mercy upon us when we did not deserve it. So do a work in your people today. Do a work in all of our hearts. Bless this church because of your word. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.